There were a couple of requests this morning in the groups to uh, go ahead and do the delusion talk today. So that's what I'll talk about this afternoon. Delusion as one of the three root causes for suffering. It's included with greed, aversion, as one of the as the root as the root causes of suffering. And as I mentioned this morning, we usually don't have too much trouble recognizing the feeling, the quality of greed in the mind or the quality of aversion in the mind, although they can get kind of subtle. So there, there are times when we don't recognize that they're present because they're operating on such a quiet level. But delusion tends to be much harder to recognize, to understand. And I've, um, I've explored it a lot. And so uh, found ways to talk about it. And so I'd just like to offer some of, mostly my own perspectives on delusion, seeing delusion, working with it. Delusion is connected with greed and aversion in a couple of different ways. First of all, um, when greed or aversion arise in the mind, kind of as I mentioned this morning, when I had this filter of aversion in the mind, I kind of, it was orienting me to see things as unpleasant this uh, this kind of filter of our on our perception it's like the the filter of aversion is distorting the perception and in my case distorting it such that the mind was tending to pick out uh, things that were unpleasant and so that that distortion is a form of delusion the delusion that we're not seeing things clearly, we're not seeing things as they are. And so, essentially, when greed or aversion is present in the mind, we're taking things in in a biased way from the perspective of greed or aversion. And that's a form of delusion, that biased perspective. And yet delusion is more fundamental than greed or aversion. Delusion is at the foundation of greed and aversion. In fact, if delusion didn't exist, 
in the mind, greed and aversion wouldn't arise. So I'll talk a little bit more about this piece of it later, but just to put it in its context, delusion can exist without greed and aversion, but greed and aversion won't exist without delusion. So delusion is really kind of the foundational or fundamental Kilesa. The foundational root out of which all the other forms of struggle of suffering arise. So for this, in this talk, I'd like to basically just offer some information. It's, it's a lot of information in this talk. Hopefully, um, I like I'm using I use a lot of examples, and so hopefully, it will be um, something you can resonate with in hearing some descriptions or hearing some examples. Um, but don't try to hold on to the information too much. Again, just take it in. And my hope is that hearing the information. Because delusion is one of those things that unless we hear information about it, it's likely to remain hidden. And so I'm hoping that offering some information will help you to be able to recognize, explore, uncover some ways that delusion works in your own minds. Jack Cornfield, I believe, talked about three aspects of delusion. Um, I, I, I don't know where he got this. Uh, I asked him at one point, where did you get this? And he said, oh, I think it was in the Visuddhimagga. And I couldn't find it in there, so <laughs> I don't know where he got this. But So this, for me, is, comes from Jack. These, he offered three different aspects of delusion, and in thinking about it, it was a, a fairly clear like gradation. It's like the most obvious form of delusion or the most easiest accessible perhaps is is related to um, just basically unawareness. And the forms of uncertainty, not knowing, um, disconnection, sloth and torpor, that kind of state where the mind is just kind of not in touch with experience. That's one form of delusion. And then Jack's framing of the second one was denial as a form of delusion. And in my thinking about it, I've reframed it in terms of delusion based on views, opinions, beliefs, ideas that we get in our upbringing, in our culture, That's a second layer of delusion. This is a little bit harder to see. It's kind of like the perspectives that we live with, the perspectives that we're raised with are so uh, pervasive that we don't know we're living in those perspectives. And so they're functioning as truth. This is just the way it is. Doesn't everybody see it this way? So that's the second level 
of um, of delusion based on views, opinions, conditions, conditioned beliefs. The third level is a more um, fundamental level. It's the level, we could call it um, human delusion in the level of um, delusion based on views and opinions of, you know, what kind of, you know, this culture believes this thing, that culture believes that thing. You know, different cultures are going to have different beliefs, different views. And this third level is basically a set of um, delusions, distortions of how we see the world that are human in nature and not related to particular uh, cultural upbringing. It just seems to be we come into the world with these a predisposition towards these delusions. And those are the most insidious, the most difficult to see. Those are the ones where we basically take what is impermanent to be permanent. We take what is unreliable to be reliable. We take what is not self to be self. And so these three categories, and I'll look, look, I'll, I'll go through each one and offer a few, a few um, thoughts about each one. So this first one, this not connecting, this is the one I think most of us can have a sense of. Anytime there's the loss of awareness, the loss of mindfulness, there's a form of delusion at work. You know, we're not aware of what's happening in the present moment. Um, we're disconnected from what's actually happening in a world of thought, perhaps. You know, just, uh, I remember at one point I was, um, I was walking down the street and I got lost in a world of thought about a partner I'd had like three, four years before. We'd broken up, long since broken up, and, and, and uh, the, the mind w- went back into thinking about that, and it was like the whole reality of being in relationship with that person existed in my mind in that moment. It's like being born into this thought bubble and believing it. And then coming out of that, there was so much confusion. It's like, what? What just happened? <laughs> so, you know, so that's another way that we can just be absorbed into the world of our thoughts, disconnected from what's actually happening. And, and those worlds may have no bearing on reality, or they may be related to reality. I think the ones where they're related to reality is where they're a little more insidious because we create those thought bubbles and believe, believe the worlds that they're in. I also remember about the same partner um, having some idea. We had a kind of contentious relationship and uh, having some idea of something he might do and then, uh, you know, so my mind dreamed up something that he might do. And then I got mad at him. <laughs> like, it was close enough to reality, you know, that some, it's something he could have done. But, you know, 
Again, the mind constructing something and then believing it. So again, these, these thought worlds. We get lost in these worlds of thought. Shakespeare, uh, I love Shakespeare. And uh, he, wrote a, he wrote a play called The Tempest, which is, I, I look at essentially, you know, one of the themes of that play is enchantment. Um, and so there's all these different characters running around doing things and commentary by the other characters about how uh, enchanted the other characters are. And here's one description. Two characters are watching another a character fighting demons in the air, basically. From the perspective of the two watching, these demons are non-existent. And they say, this is a strange repose to be asleep with eyes wide open, standing, speaking, moving, and yet so fast asleep. This is our reality much of the time. Fast asleep in terms of actually being here. And so getting familiar with this, this is one of the easiest ones to actually get familiar with. The state, uh, the states of um, disconnection, of um, uh, sleepiness, dullness, it, it manifests in those forms. And so as we start to get familiar with these states, we start to see how mindfulness gets lost in those states. And then it's possible, it's possible to then become aware in those states. Mindfulness can connect with states, and I've been saying this, but I'll just keep saying it. Mindfulness can connect with states in which we habitually are not mindful. And so from it, when that happens, when we start being mindful of sleepiness, we start being mindful of spacing out. It's possible to be mindful of spacing out. Spacing out does not inherently mean you're not aware. And so you can, you, you can start to get familiar with these states. And then they're no longer delusion. They, they are exposing something about how delusion works, but we can see there. How does it work when I'm spaced out? You know, the mind is spaced out. It kind of puts itself into a cocoon and doesn't contact other sense experience. I can be aware of that. So we start to see how, how delusion works and how these states tend to create this disconnection, but don't necessarily have to be completely disconnected and not necessary to be uh, non-mindful in them. I do, you know, thinking back to the tempest, you know, I do, I think we can think about delusion as being a form of enchantment. It's a form of uh, the, the mind enchanting itself into believing something. And so that's one aspect of uh, delusion. Can also manifest as restlessness, 
uncertainty, confusion, those kinds of states. One way to start getting familiar with these states, another way is, is we've talked about the moment of remembering, you know, getting familiar with that moment of waking up. And in that moment, when mindfulness returns, I've been encouraging you to recognize, awake, this is what it's like to be awake. Also in that moment, again, not something to try to do, but something that can kind of leave a lingering perfume, is the state of what the mind was doing just before you woke up. The state of being lost. Because our mind has this capacity to remember. And so in the moment when we become mindful, there's often a lingering memory of what it was like a moment before to not be mindful. And so that begins to, again, that begins to expose this state of delusion a little bit helping us to begin to get familiar with it. Now, the delusions based on views. A variety of, a variety of um, forms of this. Not just views, but we could say also agendas delusions based on uh, not being aware of concepts that are present in the mind. I sometimes call these personal or societal delusions. So these are, these are some of those delusions that are based on you know, how we were raised or um, what, our, what our families believed, what our religion of, you know, uh, our original religion of childhood believed. You know, views that are kind of infusing our reality. What our culture believes, what's important, that kind of thing. You know, the, the, um, and so being immersed in the view, we don't see that we're relating to experience from a a perspective, and we just take it to be truth. We take it to be reality, that we're perceiving information correctly. And what's so insidious about this is that because we have a certain perspective, that perspective orients how we take in information. And so it's easy to find evidence that supports that perspective. Not so easy to see evidence to the contrary. Just that, that perspective. This is one of the ways a filter works. And so this is one of the delusional filters. It's like, we, we, it's like uh, I just had this vision of uh, a piece of paper with a bunch of little holes in it or something and certain things get through and other things don't. You know, with a particular perspective we'll see certain things and not see other things. And this is very, very difficult both to see and to even own, to recognize, yes, I'm not seeing 
things reliably. I'm not seeing things clearly. I'm missing information. We take our sense apparatus to be like a video recorder and a audio recorder and that we're taking in all the information that's out there. But our perception is very selective. It's tuned based on our views, our opinions, our perspectives. There was a very um, revealing study some of you may have heard about uh, around this, um, I think it's called selective attention in the psychological realm. And it was uh, um, people watching, the, 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 the study was done uh, where people were requested to watch a video and the, um, the task that they were told what they were supposed to do while watching this video was to count the number of times a basketball passed between players in the white shirts. There were people throwing basketballs around. Some people had one color shirt, some people had white shirts, and they had to count the number of times somebody in the white shirt caught the ball. So it created a perspective, it created an agenda for that uh, project, for that task. So they watched the video, and that's largely it, it took a little focus. I mean, it's enough of a task that you have to like be really aware. Where's the ball? Is it going to a person in the white shirt? So you're, you're looking, you're really tracking that ball. And so um, largely people could do the task. They could accurately say, yes, this is how many times the ball passed between the people. And um, a few people additionally would say something like, was there a gorilla in that video? But largely, most people, you know, if they heard somebody say that, they'd say, no, there was no gorilla. But there was a guy in a gorilla suit that walked out into the middle of the people passing the basketball, and it was like not like something in the corner of the screen or anything. It was like right in the middle. The, the guy in the gorilla suit slowly tromped out, <laughs> kind of stood in the middle and like waved his arms and like then walked to the other side. It was like, you cannot miss the gorilla if you are aware there's a gorilla there. And so they would play, they played the tape back to people and said, see, there was the gorilla there. Now that's not... I mean, the fact that they didn't see the gorilla, to me, is not the scary piece. Because this is the way our minds work. We focus, you know, it's like we, we, um, we get really... Our, our mind has the capacity to screen out information that's not relevant for something. So that's not the problem. But the problem that I see, or the piece that I see, was that when they showed that video back, some number of them, I think about a third of the people, said, that can't be the same video. Because they so trusted their own perception that no gorilla was there, that they thought this had to be a different video. That's the power of delusion, of not recognizing that it is possible to just really miss something that is that obvious. And so that's a simple agenda that 
researchers gave research subjects. Our minds give us many, many more agendas. And with those agendas, some things we see, some things we don't see. And so this is information, I think this is, for me, this is really helpful information to uh, keep remembering because I see myself over and over again, you know, I'll, I'll see something or hear something and then I think I've remembered it right. And if somebody else says, no, no, this is what it was, I don't believe them because I believe my own perception. I have to have it proved to me. You know, I'm not willing to take somebody else's word for it. So, you know, that this is like over and over again, I've seen this, you know, that this is, this is the way my mind works. It, it really wants to trust its own view. This is, this is a form of delusion. We need to recognize that our minds are not accurate perceivers of reality. With that information, then we can be a little more flexible about our views be a little more flexible around how we navigate the world. So there's so many different forms of this delusion. There are views that we have of ourselves that come from uh, you know, just the way that we grew up. You know, ideas about what, who we are, what we can do. We, we see sometimes other people doing this to us. You know, we see somebody, you know, having this perception of, you're always X, you know, you're always late. I was like, well, wait a minute, you know, I know I'm not always late. I mean, I know I'm sometimes late, but no, I'm not always late. And so we, we, re, we, um, we object when people put us into these boxes and, and create, you know, views around us. But we don't see that we do this to ourselves as well. Some of our senses of self are this way, and I'll get into this a little bit more, but just as, a, as an example, you know, it's like um, we, we take on some kind of an identity or some kind of a perspective. It's like, yeah, I'm always miserable. Yeah, I'm miserable. I'm a miserable person. And, you know, this was a way that my mind related to reality. And every now and then I would realize, well, I'm happy, but, you know, that's, I'm happy now, but really what I know is I'm miserable. You know, just taking that identity and not admitting the, you know, the truth that, no, I'm not always miserable. It's like I dismissed that because of this view, this perspective of, of miserable. So we box ourselves in with our perspectives, our views about ourselves. And then there are views that our culture gives us. You know, one, one view that, uh, you know, we're, we're, it's like this view, sometimes our cultural views or, or our views from our family, you know. I can't think of an example of a family view right now for me. Um, but, you know, we're told things repeatedly, you know. It's like this. The world is like this. The world is like this. And because we're told these things repeatedly, we adopt that perspective. And so one of these views, I think, in our culture, in the American culture, it goes something like, America's the land of opportunity. Anyone who works hard enough can fulfill their dream. Anyone who works hard enough can live their dream. 
And so we're told this repeatedly. I certainly, I don't know where I know this from, but I, this is definitely in the, in the American culture, this, this notion. And yet that perspective, that view, is perhaps a view that uh, may have some sense of possibility for a group of people. But there is perhaps because of that view an unawareness that whole sets of conditions, for example, for people of color and African Americans in particular, whole, whole like dynamics that make it very hard to work hard enough to fulfill their dreams. And so the perspective is, oh, you're not working hard enough or, so this is a, this is, there's a, it's kind of some privileges in the culture that some people have access to and other people don't have access to. And this, uh, this view prevents, you know, it, it kind of can lead to this, uh, this delusion or this denial of um, the privilege of, of being white, for example. And how that makes, well, like opens doors, makes certain things more possible for some people and not for others. And so these views can be very pernicious and very hurtful to groups of people. Then there's some views that are created that we, we seem to extrapolate quickly based on information that we get. So we, we learn a little bit of something and then we think we know about something. The classic teaching story around this is the blind people and the elephant. Anybody not familiar with this story? Raise your hand, please. Raise your hand if you're not familiar with the blind people and the elephant story. Okay, I will briefly tell the story. It is um, uh, a king uh, wanted to have some entertainment. And so he asked a minister to gather all the blind people in the kingdom and present an elephant to them, showing each or presenting a certain aspect of the elephant to each of the blind people. So some of the blind people got to put their hands on the leg and they were told, this is an elephant. Some people, the tail, and they were told, this is the elephant. Some people, the ear, some people, the, the trunk, this is the elephant. And so they were all told, this is the elephant, based on their, what they touched. And then the king asked them to describe, well, what is an elephant like? And of course, each of the people described it differently. Some people said, well, it's like a post, or it's like a broom, or it's like a hose, you know, so just the different, the different uh, things that they had experienced. Now, again, this is not necessarily problematic because they were pointed to something and told what it was, but, but the, the delusion part here and what happens in the story 
is that after each of the blind people said, well, you know, a, 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 an elephant's like this, and then somebody else would say, no, that's not what an elephant is. An elephant li is like that. No, that's not what an elephant is. An elephant is like that. And it said they came to blows, fighting over this. Now, again, this, it's a teaching story. And it's, it's actually in the suttas. This is a teaching story that comes from the, the, the Buddha. I don't know if it was in the realm, you know, in the air when he was teaching, but it, it's, it's recorded in the suttas. So it's a teaching story that points to the way our minds tend to work. We're given some information, we extrapolate, we think we know something, and then we hold to that. You know, it's not, it's not so much the issue of the getting the information and creating a view. It's the believing the view to be reality. It's believing the view to be truth that is so pernicious about delusion. That's the real... Uh, place that we need to be careful. And so beginning to look at what do we take to be truth? How do we take it to be truth? What do we actually know? What are we taking on report? Again, a lot of the delusion can be undermined by recognizing what's happening right now and pretty much in terms of what arises in our minds you know well, there's thoughts and there's there's um uh you know body sensations and there's stuff that happens in terms of the ideas that arise in our mind most of them are views we take them to be truth and so beginning to, 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 to recognize that when, when things come up in the mind that we are taking to be truth, it's like, well, actually, this is a belief. This is a view. And it's not that we have to convince ourselves or tell ourselves this is a false view or this is a wrong view. But we just mostly need to recognize it's a view that itself will help the mind to not take it to be truth. This is a key around delusion, is recognizing, and we've been talking about this in some of the groups, it's like recognizing that um, you know, so, men, so much of our reactivity arises based on some kind of a belief or a, a perspective. That's like... Um, the the whole a notion of um, I'm a failure you know this there there was belief in that in my in my um, my self hatred exploration you know the idea that I'm a failure I mean it was what was arising in the mind was an idea I'm a failure and the mind was believing it. But it didn't notice that it was believing it. So it just took it to be, I am a failure. This is truth. So this is a piece that can be very helpful for us in, in beginning to explore uh, unmasking delusion. Recognizing when something arises in the mind and you're taking it to be 
This is the way I am. This is truth. Trying on, this is a belief, and I believe this right now. Not tell. I mean, so for instance, sometimes we might might see, and, and I certainly, you know, might might have had the tendency to say, "I'm a failure," you know, believing I'm a failure, and then have another part of my mind trying to convince myself, "No, no, really, you're not a failure. It's okay." But that's not what's going on. In that moment, the mind is believing it's a failure. And so telling myself, trying to tell myself I'm not a failure was not really acknowledging or meeting what was actually happening in that moment. So this is the power of meeting and being honest about what's happening. The thought I'm a failure is arising and believing is happening. Acknowledging that belief, acknowledging belief like, opens the door, it makes a little crack for the mind to recognize something as a view as opposed to truth. So that's, a, that's an important piece with exploring delusion. Wow. We're going to go till five today. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, so I'll, I'll mention, hopefully do this story a little bit more quickly. Um, so there's another place where this, you know, this kind of delusion can enter in, and this is around our concepts. When we take our concepts to be reality, this is similar to, you know, these views of, um, you know, I'm a failure. But, you know, sometimes we just have perceptions we take in perceptions of experience and it's like we hear a sound and we think, you know, we, we identify it and we believe that identification. So in Burma at one point I was um, meditating and I, my, my um, room was very near the monastery wall and there was a village on the other side and lots of noises came over from the village, you know, loudspeakers and people noises and and at one point in the evenings I started hearing a regular sound a squealing sound that my mind perceived recognized instantly as a pig squealing this was just the perception the mind made of it I didn't question that perception I just recognized it as pig okay pig that's what that sound is and then my mind also decided that this sound sounded very distressed. This pig squealing sound was distressed. And um, uh, I created the idea in the mind that this was the sound coming from the local butcher shop. That this pig was being, they were slaughtering pigs each evening to sell for the next day. This was my story. I, I could see this was story. I could tell this was, you know, I, I knew, I did not know this was true. But the sound was distressed and that, that's what the mind created. So in that experience, I was experiencing compassion for this pig. Then one, one night I was walking, doing walking meditation and uh, uh, at about that same time of night and um, noticed that there were these bats swooshing through the air and these bats were making that squealing noise 
And so immediately I recognized that it had not been a pig. It had not even been, not even a butchered pig. It had not been a pig at all. It's like the compassion just, of course, went poof. There was nothing to be compassionate for. It was just like, these are bats. This is the bat sound. So perception made a mistake. But the mind did not recognize that. The whole story of pig being slaughtered, the whole emotional response to that was all based on an incorrect perception. This kind of error, error in perception, happens more than we might think. And so we're walking through the world perceiving things and assuming that what we're perceiving is what's out there. And this is a slightly more insidious form of delusion. It's not so much, I mean, like I did not even consider when I first identified it as pig, I did not even consider that that might have been an erroneous perception. So that's another way that delusion can enter in, that we don't see that we're seeing experience through concept. My entire experience of that was related through this concept, whereas I thought it was relating to some kind of reality, that there was a pig out there. So, concepts are incredibly useful. We're not going to get rid of concepts. Views are useful. Thoughts are useful. The idea isn't to try to get rid of them, but to recognize that how we recognize the world, how we navigate the world, is largely mediated through concepts, views, and thoughts. And that if we are aware of that, we have some measure of capacity to not be fooled by their delusive nature. Then the most insidious form of delusion, these human delusions, taking what is impermanent to be permanent, taking what is unreliable to be reliable, taking what is not self to be self. Saira Utejaniya talks about this form of delusion in this way. He says, delusion doesn't mask the object. So we can be in delusion and know that objects are there. And so this is a very different kind of delusion than disconnection. Delusion doesn't mask the object. Delusion doesn't necessarily keep us from knowing there's an object there. But what he says is, it masks the true nature of the object. We take that object to be something that is permanent, that is reliable, that is related to me in some fashion. Shakespeare, again, has a, something to say about this. These uh, people have just arrived on the enchanted island, the Tempest, and they see the, they, they each have different kind of uh, proclivities, each of these characters. 
some of them have the kind of, we just mentioned this morning, almost like the greedy proclivity or the aversive proclivity. And one guy with the greedy proclivity, greedy proclivity is walking around exclaiming about how beautiful it is. And the two people with the aversive proclivity are looking around and looking at how it's like, you know, I don't know, he's looking at rocks and dry, bare ground, and he's proclaiming it to be verdant and lovely. So this is what uh, one character says to the other about this. He misses not much. No, he doth but mistake the truth totally. Again, this is largely how we live our lives. We go through missing not much. Well, we actually do. We miss a lot. (laughs) But we go through meeting experience and completely missing that we are mistaking the nature, the true nature of our experience. And so we take what is impermanent as permanent. We can ask ourselves, you know, at one point in my practice, I was just curious about where I was seeing solidity and being curious, you know, what is that solidity? Where is that? How am I experiencing that solidity? There's a impermanence. there's the, our, uh, the way our mind and body work, there's this rapid, very incredibly rapid flow of experience. And the way our perceptual system works, it, because that change is so rapid, our perceptual system kind of masks that change. It creates solidity, just even in, in, in our, in our um, it creates something because there's so much so much movement. So an example of this that uh, I think Saito Upandita talks about, if you take a, a stick that's fire, this may actually be from the, from the, um, the commentaries, if you take a stick that's got fire on the end of it and you swing it around in a circle. You see a circle in the air. You know, it's like the mind creates a continuity because the stick of fire is moving so quickly. And so our perceptual system will, will do this. It will mask the rapidity of change. And so our per- perceptual processes will contribute to this delusion, this form of delusion, that, that we are not noticing just how quickly things are changing. Concepts are one of the main ways that, ch- that change is also masked. Right now, um, put your attention in your hand. Close your eyes and put your attention in your hand. This isn't a perfect example, but it will do. (laughs) So feel into the experience of your hand and notice. I'll suggest, you know, you may feel vibration. Let go of the idea of hand right now. Just feel the experience. You might feel vibration or pulsing or tingling, pressure. There's that lively dance of sensations, very rapidly changing, perhaps, if you are able to touch into that. With the eyes closed, it's sometimes possible. Just feel into that experience. Now open your eyes and look at your hand and think about it 
as a hand and what hands do. They grab things. They pick things up. It's functional. Right now, what is your experience of the sensations? In my experience, even as I do this, and as many times as I've done it, I can't access the sensations while I'm exploring the idea of hand. It's like the concept of hand masks the actual experience of the, vibra- the, of the rapidly changing experience. This kind of thing happens a lot. Again, this is seeing experience through the concept. And so much of the way our minds work, we relate to experience through concept rather than through the actual experience. Now concept, the arising of concept is an experience. But we often don't notice, oh, concept is arising. Instead we relate to the experience as though the concept were the reality. Again, concepts are useful, but when we take them to be truth, when we take them to be reality, those concepts are completely created by the mind. We are experiencing our world mediated through our mind. And so we're living, relating to experience through the mind. And if we don't know this, and we're taking what's being created by our minds as being the reality of the world, there's a lot of room for delusion to creep in. A lot of room. So, beginning to investigate what is it that you take to be solid? What is it that you take to be permanent? This can be kind of surprising at times. Sometimes things being revealed as um, taking them to be permanent when suddenly they're not there anymore. I remember uh, um, uh, watching someone do walking meditation. I was pretty uh, deep into a long retreat in Burma. And uh, I, was, I opened my eyes and there was somebody doing walking meditation in front of me. And um, there were these large posts in the room. And um, so I was watching the person do walking meditation. And suddenly the person um, went behind the post and the mind uh, like freaked out for a minute. It's like, the person disappeared. You know, it's like the, the, the mind um, had attributed a a kind of a, a thing or something, you know, to, to that person. And then there was kind of this shock when, you know, the mind thought that the person disappeared. Now, clearly the person reappeared magically on the other side of the post. Was like, That's another shock. So, you know, the, this, um, just looking at what we, what we take to be solid, where are we attributing solidity? So sometimes we see... Um, that we've been taking something to be solid when, some th- when, it, when it goes away, basically. And the second kind of key human delusion, taking what is unreliable as reliable. This is a big part of how um, greed and aversion work. They're really tied into this delusion. That basically this delusion is uh, 
connecting to or, or taking some kind of pleasure, perhaps, as being a reliable source of happiness, you know, a place where we can finally like rest our minds. And so we, um, we see uh, the wanting, we see the greed for, for sense pleasure. Greed is born out of this delusion that getting, that, that there's something out there to get that will make me happy. The, the essentially the delusion that's embedded in greed. I mean, the delusion, the greed itself is the wanting. The greed is the wanting something pleasant. That's kind of the movement of greed. But the delusion that's embedded in greed is if I get that thing, I'll be happy. If I get that thing, yeah, that's, that's going to do it for me. And we can see this in watching wanting. This is another way that we can really see delusion. It's like, it's surprising sometimes. I mean, I've seen watching myself want chocolate, you know. It's like the, the mind um, somehow, uh, it, it wants the chocolate. But there's this also this bit of the mind that's going, yeah, that cho- when I get that chocolate, that is going to make me happy. There's some, like, it's caught in the delusion that that's going to be, going to do it for me somehow. It's, it's kind of amazing when we actually see just how much our minds invest into something as fleeting as a piece of chocolate. And so watching this, watching how the... Um, the view of greed, the view of aversion. It's not just about the wanting something and the wanting to get rid of something. There's the belief that's embedded in it, that having that thing, getting rid of that thing, is what will make me happy. And this is that sense of there's something reliable out there, something I can either reliably have or reliably get rid of, and then I'll be happy. So the the teaching that Buddha offered on this one was uh, kind of simple, actually. You know, it's it's just simple to recognize. Okay, there is sense pleasure out there. Don't deny that there's sense pleasure. You know, there 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 is that um, appreciation when we get something that's pleasant. Those cookies the other day, and it's like there's pleasure when we eat those cookies. What the Buddha pointed us to do here is. Notice how long that pleasure lasts. He said, notice how far the gratification of sense pleasure extends. So how long does it actually last? And we notice that it's pretty fleeting. And so the, we get, the mind gets the education in doing this kind of exploration that that, you know, what we're, what we're, Pinning our hopes on is like vanishing almost as soon as it arises. Really showing us the unreliability of what we've been taking to be reliable. This idea that there's something out there that is going to make me happy. Whatever it is for you, you know, it might be something like a relationship or having a job or having a a home or, you know, something 
you know, that that, that is going to make me happy. I'll finally have arrived when I have that thing. One Dharma teacher, um, while on retreat or teaching retreat, I don't remember which, uh, she arrived home after having taught her retreat to find out her house had burned down. You know, these things can happen. The places where we put our hopes for lasting happiness are unreliable. This can be hard to take. I think this is, you know, the, the, the hard, you know, hard to take this truth of the unreliability of our, it's, it's painful. And this is part of the reason I think we, it's hard to open to. It's hard to open to these truths. And then there is seeing what is not self as self. I talked about this a little bit earlier around identification with roles, with emotions, you know, just seeing, you know, boxing ourselves in, taking ourselves to be a particular way. There's so many different ways that we identify with being a me. Maybe I'll give a talk on that at some point during this, this retreat. It's, it's also useful to explore, unpack that one. I don't have time to really unpack it right now. But one of the things that we can explore here um, is just to investigate when, it, when there's a real strong sense of me. I mean, pretty much whenever there's suffering, there's a sense of identification happening. But, you know, to try to say, oh, I'm suffering, where's the me in this? You know, how, what, what you know, I know that I've been told that somehow selfing is the root of all of the suffering, so where's the me? But, you know, that's not what we're really, it's not so clear what the sense of self is. But sometimes the sense of self is like glaring us in the face. When that happens, when it's like, you know, you know, you're, you're doing walking meditation calmly in a room and, you know, nobody's in there. It's just like you're just doing your walk in meditation, you know. It's like not, not, you know, you might know that, well, maybe there's a little sense of self here, but it's not like so obvious. I don't know. It's just like, you know, just doing the walk in meditation. But somebody walks in the room, poof, I arrived. <laughs> Andrea appeared. Okay. Looking good. Okay. <laughs> Watch that when it's obvious, when it's like right in the face, you know, when it's right in your face, you can start to be curious, not to try to like get rid of it, but it's like, wow, that's the sense of self. What is that? And noticing that it just appeared and it wasn't there a moment before. At one point I was doing... um, on the three-month course, I was really struggling with a sense of self. It was a, you know, it was a, I was my 40-year-old argumentative, right, you know, I knew I was right, and there was somebody asking questions in the hall, and, and I was just so annoyed by this person, and I was, I saw all of this, and I was doing walking meditation and seeing all of the thoughts about this arise and feeling like this 
40-year-old argumentative, like, really, you know. Uh, I was noticing that, the whole show of it. And um, I was doing the walking meditation outside, and this big truck drove up. And um, the brakes squeal, and it made these big loud bangs. And, and what my mind did in that moment was it like it was like switch flipped and it was like the mind went oh it's a truck it's a truck oh my god it's a truck it's like i became a two-year-old boom like that it's just like i just stood there in glorying in that the bangs and the the sounds it's like wow it's a truck that was like really seeing the malleable nature of self how caught i had been in the sense of me the 40 year old me and how quickly it vanished this two-year-old truck enjoyer was you know no relationship to the 40 year old argumentative self we can start to see these like different senses of self arising. So just watch them. Be curious about them. So my hope is that this encourages you to be interested in exploring and not taking your experience at face value. That uh, you know, non-delusion is not something we can do. We can't simply choose to flip a switch and say, I'm not going to be deluded now. By its very nature, it's masking our reality. But we can begin, to, hearing this kind of information, we can begin to not necessarily trust all of our experience. And slowly, in kind of a layered process, we start to see little bits of, like little bits of delusion start to fall away. We see, we see through little bits of it. And then maybe it comes back. That's another piece about how delusion works. It's like we might see through it for a little while, and then um, it seems so clear. It seems so clear that, yeah, I've been seeing myself as this miserable person, and it's just a thought. You know, it might be very clear in that moment. But then, you know, an hour later... It's no longer clear that it's a thought and we're in it again. But at that point, you know, having seen through it, having seen through certain forms of delusion, at that point we can recognize, I mean, before we see through it, it's hard to recognize as delusion. But after we've seen through it, even when it comes back, at that point we can know, yeah, you know this this misery this identification with being miserable this is a this is a view it feels like i really believe it right now but this is a view i've seen through this it's not i've seen through this why am i not seeing through it now but i've seen through it i know this is delusion operating in the mind right now and so we can we can it's, it's like it, it falls away it comes back it falls away it comes back and over time, more and more aspects of delusion become unmasked, become revealed to us. This is a long process. 
patience, but hopefully some curiosity about how it works. Because this factor of delusion is one of the key reasons, not only why we suffer, but, by the, but why the world is in the state that it's in. So any work that we can do to unmask it will serve not only ourselves, but will serve the world. At least that's my, my sense. And so we need to stop. I apologize for going long. <laughs>